A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. We are living in a renaissance of sorts at Queen's Park. Once again, in the lead-up to a provincial election... Promises related to the minimum wage and workers' rights are back in vogue among the government in power. But unlike in 2017, when then-Premier Kathleen Wynne also introduced labor legislation seven months out from an election, these reforms aren't going to be rolled back when the Conservatives take power, because they're already in power. They're jumping over the very low bar that they themselves lowered. Doug Ford is framing his pro-worker policies and minimum wage hike as a reward for the essential workers who kept supply chains running and grocery stores open during the pandemic, saying they now deserve to have more money in their pockets. When it mattered most, we were able to count on you. And now it's our turn. That's why I'm so proud to announce that our government will raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour effective January 1st, 2022. But is 65 cents more an hour, some new regulations on temp agencies, and the ability for delivery drivers to use the toilet really going to change the lives of low-income and gig workers in Ontario? Or is this pro-worker image really just nothing more than political PR? On this episode, we'll discuss whether Doug Ford and the PCs are actually working for workers, as they claim, or, like many other workers themselves, are just in fact working for Uber. And later in the show, we'll talk to someone who does work for Uber, Uber Eats, that is, and who is working to organize his fellow c- couriers, is, is, is that the term they use? His, his fellow gig workers. Presuming Doug Ford continues to allow that. I'm 
Allison Smith, publisher of Queens Park Today. And I wanted to announce that Wag the Doug has an official email address. Starting now, listeners can reach us directly at wagthedoug at canadaland.com. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canadaland, and I'm a proud member of CWA Canada, which stands for Communications Workers of America Canada, which is an awkward name. It's a union. Yes, it is. And this is Wag the Doug. A monthly podcast about Doug Ford. So we're definitely going to get into the details of the PC's new labor reform bill. But before we do, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you what you think about this remark Doug Ford made during his press conference about increasing the minimum wage to $15 on January 1st. You know, right right from the get-go when our family got into politics, we're for the working people. Plain and simple, bottom line, people know it. I will always be for the workers, always. And... Uh, I take that from my brother Rob. He was for the workers as well. Would you say Doug's characterization of his family and his brother Rob as being always in it for workers is a fair or realistic one? Absolutely. I mean, they've done a lot of work to organize workplaces and strengthen the union movement. And oh, oh, we're talking about Rob and Doug Ford? No, no, no. I mean, they've certainly been consistent in their rhetoric, always claim to support workers, front frontline workers and their interests. But other than, you know, the whole putting money back in your pocket thing, it's never really been clear what they've meant by that. There's a, you know, pretty big discrepancy between what they say about working people and how they actually govern. You know, it's pretty standard conservative populist stuff, although you get or got the sense they never really saw any contradiction between helping out the little guy, as it were, while aggressively attacking unions, public sector workers as a whole, and even basic labor standards. The minimum wage would have gone up to $15 three years ago had he not been elected to power. If you've paid any attention to Toronto politics this century, you probably at least vaguely recall one of then-Councillor Rob Ford's more racist remarks when he said, you know, I, I won't repeat the specific archaically offensive term here, but basically he said Asian people work like dogs, they work their hearts out, they sleep beside their machines, and that's why they're successful in life. An A-plus example of his obliviously bombastic racism, for sure. But it's easy to forget the unnerving context for a remark that he meant as a compliment. This was 2008, and council was debating whether retail stores should be allowed to open up on holidays, with the concern being that employees might be, or at least might feel, compelled to forego the days off to which they're entitled. But Councillor Ford was of the opinion that holidays and rest are a competitive disadvantage in a globalized world. And he capped off his remarks with, This is capitalism, ladies and gentlemen. He very much believed that working people ought to be in a race to the bottom. I do think there's something interesting to be said about the minor changes to Doug Ford's campaign promises in 2018 compared to heading into the next spring's election. There's something more concrete, like literally concrete, when it comes to the new highways he wants to build and less symbolic about the pledges. You know, instead of fire the $6 million Hydro One CEO and sell beer for a buck, it's build infrastructure and, you know, do some things that will actually be legislated before the election to, to make vulnerable workers slightly less fucked. But that said, the ideology behind all of these things remains exactly the same. And, you know, the same as Rob Ford's ideology. We should have lots and lots of roads to drive on and the gas should be cheap so we can drive a lot and get to our jobs and to our families and spend our money however we want and not give it to the government because the government's a bad place to give money to. Even though Ontario's spending budget 
deficit and debt load are all much higher than when Kathleen Wynne left office. And some of those things were going up even before the pandemic. So it can't all be blamed on that. I mean, that sort of stuff, the general pro-taxpayer, anti-government rhetoric, I mean, that's pretty much the crux of Ford's populism. And in that sense, he and his brother were kind of unusual populists in that, you know, unlike most other conservative populists, they seldom played on anxieties around immigration and security, certainly not as central tenets of their strategy. But that really shifted with the premier over the course of the pandemic, when fears about people crossing our border, particularly on flights from India, became a core message with which he tried to whip up his base against the federal government at the very least. And just a few weeks ago, just after we recorded our last episode, he kind of flipped around his brother's 2008 remarks about hard workers in other countries. You come here like every other new Canadian has come here. You work your tail off. If you think you're coming to collect the dole and sit around, not going to happen. I mean, aside from the problematic sentiment and, and phrasing of that remark, collect the dole really feels like something his dad, Doug Ford Sr., probably ranted about at the family dinner table in like the 70s and 80s. And it's also very untrue that that's what new immigrants to Ontario are doing. Nearly all new Canadians are what they call economic immigrants, meaning they're selected to come here in you know, a pretty intense global competition based on their skills and ability to contribute to the country's economy. Also, the dole, so to speak, in Ontario is $733 a month, which doesn't exactly provide a great lifestyle. I mean, Doug Ford refused to apologize for that remark, as, as he does, or doesn't, uh, and instead doubled down on it. Here's him in question period a few days later. Last night and this morning, my phone was blowing up on messages. And guess what the messages were from? They were from new Canadians, immig immigrants that came here, first generation. And they told me story after story last night. One story how their parents came over, their father worked in a gold mine to put him through school, through university. Another person told me the story about his first job was a dishwasher, but guess what, Mr. Speaker? He owns his own restaurant now and is employing 30 to 40 people. These are the stories that I hear. <coughs> Mr. Speaker, all you have to do has come to a Ford Fest. You'll see the support from people around the world order. that Opposition come there. And guess what, Mr. Speaker? I'll tell response. you how Ford Nation was created. They came to this country. They couldn't get a hold of any NDP Liberal leaders, but they got a hold of the Mayor of Toronto. They got a hold of the Premier. We show up to their door. We return their call. I actually followed up with the Premier's office and the PC party after he said all that to find out if there actually was a Ford Fest coming up that we could come on down to. Turns out there is not. I, I imagine the vaccination requirements uh, could, could make it awkward. Interestingly, the question he was responding to in that exchange was from an NDP MPP who was asking about making it easier for immigrants with credentials to join the workforce. And that was, incidentally, one of the policies the PC's labor minister, Monty McNaughton, rolled out in the Working for Workers Act bill the following week. That rule change will allow new Canadians who are engineers or architects, plumbers, electricians, accountants, hairstylists, teachers, early childhood educators to get professionally licensed without having Canadian work experience and to also you know, ensure their applications to regulatory bodies get responses faster. While this is good, I would argue it's really like low hanging fruit and not particularly creative policymaking. 
I mean, we've all heard stories for, you know, decades about the Toronto cab driver who used to be a doctor in Pakistan or something. And, you know, the PCs bill also won't even apply to doctors. There's actually like an an Indian-Canadian romantic comedy about that. Dr. Cabby from 2014. Uh, Lily Singh has a cameo in it. My water just broke. Trust me, I'm a doctor. No, you're a cabbie. Bush! Ah! The UCP government in Alberta has also been proposing similar things about, you know, uh, getting credentials quicker for immigrants. And when Jason Kenney and Doug Ford both introduced the same policy ideas, which is something that actually happens like a lot and nobody talks about it. <laughs> I just know because I cover both provinces. I, I assume that those are ideas that have been sitting in a pile of the Canadian Tory brain trust for years and that someone in you know one of those premier's offices is just basically spinning a wheel to decide which one is the most politically palatable of those to announce that month or to throw into a campaign platform. That's an interesting way to put it. I mean, so so let's talk about what else is in McNaughton's bill, the Working for Workers Act, um, a title of which I'm sure they are very proud of themselves. So it has a lot of the kinds of things I associate with bills that liberal governments tend to introduce midway between election cycles. You know, policies that represent steps up from the status quo, definite steps up, but would still dance around anything that would actually meaningfully improve people's lives. So I guess I'm dangerously dancing on a very short staircase. So, for example, they're banning non-compete agreements, which are, you know, provisions and contracts that say that after an employee leaves a company, they can't then go work for a competitor, at least not immediately. Banning these is good, but even setting aside the fact that the prohibition probably won't be retroactive, that is to say it probably is not going to invalidate current such non-compete agreements, it should be pointed out that courts generally strike those down anyway. This is better in that neither employees nor employers will be under the illusion that they're legal or enforceable, but it doesn't really change much. Also, non-solicitation agreements are still allowed. Those are like, you know, provisions saying you can't pursue the clients of an employer after you leave. Along similar lines, employers will have to draw up and distribute a policy on disconnecting from work, which the bill defines as not engaging in work-related communications so as to be free from the performance of work. That's also good. But one, it only applies to workplaces with at least 25 employees, and if you've ever worked for a startup in its early days, you know. Two, we don't yet know what the policies will actually have to say. Three, it doesn't appear that these policies actually have to be enforced, just drafted and handed out. And four, I don't really think this actually helps most workers in most workplaces, certainly not the most the most vulnerable ones. They've also been trumpeting the fact that the law would require workplaces to let delivery people use their bathroom facilities when they're there to pick up or drop off items, which, you know, better than the status quo, I guess, but it's also probably the least substantial concrete improvement to working conditions for delivery drivers that could possibly be put into legislation. Well, we'll get more into that shortly. Then there's the whittling down of the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board, which, well, that one doesn't even sound very good, unless I guess you're an employer who doesn't like paying into it because your workplace isn't the sort where physical injuries are common. The WSIB would be refunding premiums to such safer workplaces when there's an excess amount sitting in the board's reserve. But like all insurers, the surplus is a result of aggressive denials of claims, at least as much as it's about the premiums that they charge. So just think about what kinds of workers are more likely to be injured on the job and to put in a claim and therefore more likely to have a claim denied, compared to the kinds of employers that will, you know, run so-called safe workplaces who will enjoy these refunds. I think we don't actually know either yet what a, how they'll constitute a safe or safer workplace. Like, 
it doesn't necessarily mean like, I don't know, a journalism outfit where, you know, people aren't getting hurt because they're just sitting at a desk. You know, it could be places where people do get hurt, but the company has like passed some sort of test or, you know, the PCs could really define that however they want. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily not dangerous workplaces that will uh, start getting these refunds. They're also going to have a licensing and regulatory regime for temp agencies, which, yeah, that, that's good, right? Yeah, I mean, it. I definitely agree that temp agencies should be better regulated. Like there's more than 2,000 of them operating in Ontario, which seems... Uh, yeah, that's a lot. Um, but again, it's it's more low-hanging fruit. The Toronto Star has been reporting on the growing number of temp agencies and how they're underpaying people and exposing them to unsafe working conditions, you know, for years. And the actual terms of the bill don't actually do much more than require these agencies to be licensed by 2024. The announcement also got resounding support from the industry association that represents staffing agencies, and it kind of seems to be doing not much more than ensuring established temp companies aren't undercut by shadier ones. Something the PCs did back in 2018, at the same time they uh, ended the planned minimum wage hikes, was axe another liberal era policy that required companies to pay temp workers the same amount per hour as they paid regular employees. I mean, ultimately, that would have, you know, a probably discouraged companies from, you know, relying so heavily on temp workers and also made temp workers salaries higher. So this is where, you know, Ford's statement about ensuring immigrants work really hard, you know, really girds me because people do want to work hard. But his government, you know, literally instituted or eliminated policies that made sure they wouldn't get paid decent wages to do so. I mean, once again, you think back to Rob Ford's gross stereotype of people in certain other countries who sleep beside their machines, and that he offered that as an example of a laudable work ethic and enviable working conditions from a competitiveness standpoint. And I should be clear, the Ford government is not reinstating that uh, temp worker wage thing. Like, that's not one of their new labor reforms. All they're doing for temp agencies is making sure the agency themselves has a certificate um, and, you know, could be investigated maybe more easily should they be found to be stealing uh, employees' money. Um, but there already is a program for helping retrieve temp workers' salaries that the government, you know, boasts about once in a while. So that's part's not even really new. A couple of things I wanted to note about the response to the bill, um, you know, is firstly is that the Liberals and the NDP, at least so far in the legislature at Queen's Park, they're supporting it. They let it pass second reading. Um, and I wonder if it's that's sort of proof that the PC's party of yes stuff that we talked about in the last episode is kind of getting to them. They don't want Ford to be parading around saying that their party said no, 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 no to labor reform. Um, I mean, obviously the PCs have a majority, so it doesn't really matter how the other parties vote, but it's still kind of notable because the NDP at least really do tend to vote against almost every bill the PCs propose. The other fallout from this bill is how Ford was kind of able to cut the NDP and the liberals off at their knees when it comes to talking about the minimum wage. You know, the fight for a $15 minimum wage has been sort of an anchor of advocacy in Ontario for a long time. 
And, you know, right after the PCs and Ford announced the change, Andrea Horvath now says she wants it to be $17 an hour, you know, which is a better wage, but it's still not a living wage, at least not in the GTA. And the premier's office unearthed, you know, very recent messaging from NDP MPPs pushing for $15 and circulated that to media. Now the New Democrats are pivoting to call on Ford to reimburse workers $5,300, which is what the party says each full-time minimum wage worker would have earned over the past three years if the wage had been $15 that whole time. I guess what I'm trying to say was that it was really politically savvy of the PCs because now they have this very clear, smooth message and the opposition is kind of all over the place. It's kind of incredible that the NDP was still holding the line at $15 until that recently. I didn't even realize that. So, but, but, but going back to double check when they first began advocating for that number, I'm reminded that they kind of dragged their heels on backing even that, or, or the Ontario NDP did anyway. The federal NDP backed a $15 minimum wage for federally regulated workers in 2014. Federally regulated workers are like employees of airlines and banks and broadcasters, not a ton of whom make minimum wage. Most workplaces, especially those that employ minimum wage workers, tend to be provincially regulated. And the Ontario NDP spent a couple years resisting calls to match the ambitions of the federal party, finally signing on to the $15 an hour rate in 2016. Now, the Bank of Canada's inflation calculator says that 15 bucks in 2016 was the equivalent of $16.64 now, but goodness knows that still doesn't approach the real cost of living, especially in Toronto. If you're paid for 40 hours a week, that's under $35,000 a year, which means there's a good chance that you couldn't afford both rent in Toronto and, you know, the expenses involved in actually staying alive. So there's a whole other aspect to the PC's promised labor reform that we know is in the wings, but we don't know how it will shake out or when it will be announced. Back in June, the aforementioned Labor Minister Monty McNaughton announced a new Workforce Recovery Advisory Committee that was tasked with coming up with ideas for how to improve the jobs game in Ontario, in particular when it comes to the gig economy. Since then, the panel has faced quite a bit of criticism for not having any worker representation on it or members from the labor sphere, and its chair quit to run for the Conservative Party of Canada in the federal election. Yeah, in an interview with uh, Eastern Ontario's TVC22 Rockland, that candidate, Susan MacArthur, offered some insight into the panel's discussions. Uh, You know, before I jumped into this election, I was chairing a committee on the future of work. And we found, hearing from various stakeholders, that, you know, this concept of work from anywhere is really important and directionally where where the world is going. Mm. Um, The other thing that we found that was really important when we're talking to, for example, we interviewed some senior people at Spotify who their, their position is, you know, the future of work is one of the mantras of how they think about their business and how they organize themselves. I'm sure the countless musicians unable to support themselves through streaming revenues would be thrilled to hear that the government is consulting Spotify in the future of work. Anyway, she lost in the election, coming in a distant but respectable second. Now, of the six remaining members of the Workforce Recovery Committee, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I, actually, I'm not sure if any of them have ever had would have had gig jobs. I mean, three of them have been contributing columnists for the National Post. I think one, at least one of them still is. Three of them have been contributing columnists for the Globe and Mail, although there's some overlap between those groups. Uh, one used to co-host a community slash campus radio show with, with Allison. 
and only one, so far as I know, has blocked me on Twitter. It probably won't surprise you to learn that that's the employment lawyer whose husband ran the Federal Conservatives 2019 campaign and was one of the founding directors of the Rebel. Although she's now representing a former employee of Jason Kenney's office in a suit against them, so, like, you know, that's interesting. In an interview with the Globe and Mail published on October 25th, so exactly three weeks before we're recording this, McNaughton said that the government would act within weeks to do something based on the panel's recommendations to help gig workers get bigger paychecks and more protections. Labor advocates and the NDP want that to be rules that would require gig workers, or at least, you know, gig workers who support themselves primarily by doing gig work for many, many hours a week, to be classified as employees under the Employment Standards Act. To discuss why that classification change would be a boon for gig workers and, you know, why some of the other alternatives would be very bad, we are joined by... Brees Sofer, he's the vice president of Gig Workers United. Um, Labor Minister Monty McNaughton has promised to release new laws, new policies regulating gig work pretty soon, maybe as soon as this week. Uh, what does Gig Workers United want to see? And how do you think that compares to what might actually happen? We've presented a uh, Gig Workers Bill of Rights. Our biggest issue is that we are misclassified as independent contractors, when we are in fact um, employees, all aspects of our work resemble the experience of an employee. The method through which we deliver goods or carry people in our, uh, in our vehicles is dictated by the apps. The way that we are paid is dictated by those apps. Um, we have no autonomy. Uh, we can also be deactivated, um, you know, essentially fired. Just like an employee, the only difference is that those apps, those companies have no obligations towards us, the obligations that a normal worker would have from those companies. So, you know, I don't get EI if I'm deactivated. And often I can be deactivated uh, incorrectly. I can be cut off from the app from my source of income without any real, um, real proof. So cu a customer could say that I stole the food or, or anything like that, and, and I have no recourse so we would be looking for the protections that other workers uh, have in Ontario. Um, another issue, we're not paid for most of the time that we're working. Uh, I'm only paid, I work for Uber Eats. You know, I'm only paid for the time that I'm carrying an order. Um, the time that I'm waiting for an order, the time that, um, you know, all the time in between, which can represent, there are studies I've shown, it can be around 50% of the time that we're out there. That's all unpaid. So it's just getting things like that, getting support for the vehicle. Like my bike is, is how I transport uh, goods to people. Um, if it breaks down, I foot all the, the costs of repairs. There is no help from Uber. My phone, if it breaks, which I need in order to access that work, I have to pay for the bill. I have to pay for the repair. Imagine going into work. You have to pay for the computer, the internet connection. You have to pay for every single thing that you use to do that job. It's pretty frightening. And that's, and that's really what is trying to be established as the new baseline of work. And, uh, and, and, and what we fear is that Mike McNaughton is that he will kind of codify this type of work and this type of arrangement in a new category. This is uh, what uh, Uber has proposed. They have made a proposal earlier this year called Flexible Work Plus. 
And that is essentially to create a new category of worker that would essentially enshrine the arrangement that they currently have with their with their workforce. Um, and it, you know, and there's there's all these arguments that are used of flexibility and and uh, technology, but really what it comes down to is is worker exploitation and a lowering of the bar for all workers in this province. Yeah, we did want to talk sort of specifically about that because in early 2020, I'm sure you are well aware, the Ontario Labor Relations Board ruled that Fedora delivery workers should be considered dependent contractors, which is, as you said, a third category or classification of employment beyond just employees and independent contractors. Um, The result of that was that Fedora exited the Ontario market, but uh, I guess I'm, yeah, maybe you could just talk a little bit more specifically about the downside or, or as you see it, of of creating a dependent contractor classification and like codifying it into provincial law. So, so yeah, currently there is already a dependent uh, contractor classification in, in Ontario. Um, but this would be another category, basically. By the way, I was involved in that campaign with Fedora and, and, and Gig Workers United is an outgrowth of Foodsters United uh, that, that was successfully unionized the Fedora workers. Um, you know, as to whether they left uh, Fedora because of a result of unionization, that, that, might be, that might be one of the reasons. But as a worker of Fedora, they were also very terribly managed. You know, I, 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 there's many reasons why they left. Uh, and, and, you know, if a company can't pay their workers a living wage and can't offer them basic worker benefits, then what does that say about that company, that they just take their ball away when, when the rules don't, uh, aren't, aren't fully tipped in their favor? You know, the the dependent contractor is is still not a category that's designed for the type of work that we're doing. There is a category that already exists for this type of work, and it's called an employee, because um, that's essentially what we are. We have we have no leverage. My my father is an independent contractor. He he does consulting on things. You know, he gets to set the framework of his work. He can say, hey, I you know what? I have these expenses, and uh, it's going to take this amount of time. Uh, this is the cost. This is what it's going to cost you with all these other factors in you know included. I don't get to do any of that. Uber tells me this is what you're getting paid. Uh, oh, by the way, also, we won't explain to you every single way that we calculate uh, how much you get paid because you're too dumb. You, you don't need to know that. Um, it's their way or the highway. So that, to me, doesn't speak to a category of, you know, of an independent contractor. And, and it's definitely not encapsulated fully into what a dependent contractor was. And, and the reason why we argued in that campaign for dependent contractor status is because that at least gave us the right to unionize. You spoke about EI and CPP. I know um, Philomena Tassi, who was uh, the federal labor minister up until uh, before the election, she kind of talked about um, maybe codifying some of that kind of gig workers' rights into the Canadian labor code. How important are those kind of two aspects for you? Uh, those are very important. I mean, personally, I'm I'm 41. Um, you know, you get to a certain age and you start seeing the end of work and you start wondering about, uh, you know, the winding down of your life and, uh, you know, not having any contributions other than the ones I've made to CPP, it's a, it's a pretty bleak future. And I think a lot of people are in that position. And it's, I think it's going to be a big issue that we're going to have to contend with as a society going forward. 
Um, EI is, is an obvious issue. Um, that in conjunction with the fact that there has to be no just cause, uh, proof of why we're terminated, means that gig workers at the drop of a hat, at uh, you know, completely randomly sometimes, can just find themselves with no work. And on top of that, no safety net, which is really terrible. So I think that there's, you know, having, you know, having the ability to contribute to EI with your employer contributing at the same time, uh, you know, that, that makes that safety net available to them. And it, 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 and it, it, it plugs a gap. I'm sure you know the Doug Ford, they're kind of on a, a little minimum wage kick right now. They increased minimum wages for servers and, and everyone else. Um, if they were to institute a, a minimum wage for gig workers, how concerned would you be that the algorithm would just kind of, I don't know, game that in its own way? Yeah, I, I mean, and that's that's kind of speaks to a lot of the things in their Working for Workers Act, uh, you know, that, that a lot of the gaps. Uh, there's really not a, real, a lot of explanation about how this will apply to a lot of people. Um, you know, the minimum wage, I, I mean, let's look at what that means. It's minimum wage. Um, it's a floor. Um, it's not a ceiling. It's not the standard. It's not how we should be measuring any level of success. It is a minimum. And it's not even sufficient. If you live in Toronto, you know it's not sufficient. Um, you know, the living wage is, I think, above $22 an hour in Toronto. So if it's regulated in a sense, and if these apps, you know, are, are kind of, you know, if they're held to pay people a minimum, at a minimum, minimum wage, then that's not a problem. If they start gaming it, which, I mean, they're entirely capable of doing and their past behavior would indicate maybe they would try something like that. Um, you know, then there needs to be more teeth. That's the issue, I guess, like I was saying with, with this Working for Workers Act is that a lot of the proposals in here and a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that they're bringing in don't really have any explanation about how they're going to work. You know, I'm also thinking about the bathroom uh, thing that they brought up with a lot of fanfare. I don't see any explanation of how that will be enforced. Am I, as a worker, supposed to stand up for my rights to the business owner? And, you know, am I supposed to get into an argument with them? It's supported by the Ontario Health and Safety Act. Um, I've made complaints through the Ontario Health and Safety Act. I made a complaint about our working conditions in August. I haven't heard back from them. Other workers have heard back from them, and the reason why we don't get any help is because we're misclassified as independent contractors. So that being the proviso, that being the way that, that that will be enforced tells me that it won't apply to me. You know, I'm also looking at it here. There are exemptions for if there is a health concern. So the business can still bar us from using the, the bathroom if there's a pandemic, which was the entire reason why they barred us from using the bathrooms in the first place. So it doesn't actually solve anything. How would you describe your, yourself and your colleagues? Like, what, what does the workforce look like? It's such a diverse workforce. Myself, you know, I came into this work because I, I work in the arts. I'm a DJ, I do music. Um, and uh, I needed to plug a gap in my income, you know, gigging and stuff. Uh, it was not always reliable. So I started doing, working for Fudora back in 2015. I've been doing this for a number of years. Um, and then switched to Uber Eats kind of just before Fudora left. But you have like a lot of, uh, you know, a, a large, the largest group I would say is, uh, you know, are people that are new arrivals to the country. 
And the reason why they choose this type of work is that there's a low, very low barrier for entry. Basically, you come with a bike or a car and a phone, and you're good to go. Um, but there's a lot of frustration because like this type of work due to misclassification, it doesn't count towards permanent residency. So this work that people tend to gravitate to because of the easy access doesn't in fact help them in getting access to becoming, you know, a Canadian citizen or, or permanent resident. Um, but yeah, it's, it's older people. There's, there's a number of careers that are like in their 60s and 70s. Um, you know, the older workers are people that didn't have access to a pension or that, you know, it was, wasn't enough. And so they're out here grinding away, biking in, you know, how's the weather going to be in a month or so? <laughs> you know, they're going to be out there riding their bikes or e-bikes uh, in really e terrible weather. So, yeah, it's a very, very diverse group of people. And it's a very, I mean, it, that's one of the challenges and the beautiful things about doing this type of organizing is you're really connecting with so many different people and you're finding a consensus or like a, a thing that they all can agree on and rally around. And that is like that this industry is absolutely rotten and needs to be fixed immediately. Well, it will be really interesting to see what this, you know, what McNaughton's committee recommends and what Ontario does with that, um, especially since, you know, Ontario is kind of the first province in Canada to really tackle the gig economy and employment law in any real way. I mean, assuming that that's what, you know, this committee recommends, which seems like it's going to. Um, and I mean, I'm interested in what he said about if they do proceed with a new classification of worker, you know, is that basically legislating a permanent underclass of, you know, app run workers in, a, you know, the circumstances of, you know, late capitalism where we are right now, where that is just a growing fleet. Like if that happens, what's to stop a, I don't know, um, automobile manufacturer from, you know, putting a bunch of temp workers on an app and all of a sudden they're app workers and, you know, their rights are completely different. So where, you know, it does seem like part of a, a, a slow uh, climb to the bottom, uh, depending on obviously how it pans out. God, I mean, yeah, I mean, late capitalism is certainly one term for it. But yeah, every industry is moving in that direction. I mean, you know, academia doesn't really hire full-time faculty members anymore they have sessionals most places thankfully those are classified as employees but like basically the traditional notion of employment is of course um i would say disintegrating but that that, is, that makes it sound like it's a natural erosion it's being taken apart it's being gradually pulled apart dismantled dismantled that's the word that's the word for it as we keep trying to figure out what are all the, yeah, as I said, all the various ways to roll back the meager standards that workers have won over the course of mostly the past hundred years or so, maybe a little more than that now. But like, um, what are the ways to get around that as standards have risen to something that maybe gets closer to a life of dignity, ideally? Uh Places are finding ways to just basically opt out, of, essentially opt out of, or at least try to opt out of employment standards and employment law altogether. And again, bringing it back around to Doug Ford's, you know, if you come here, you better work hard and get off the dole remarks. 
As Brees alluded to, and according to Statistics Canada, recent male immigrant workers are almost twice as likely as Canadian-born males to be employed in the gig economy. You know, the people that are coming here and working hard, this is the work a lot of them are doing. And the gig economy is not an employment space where there's room for advancement in your career. Um, as like, it's evident that wage-wise, you know, workers' fortunes are more likely to get worse, uh, but rather than better over time. So, you know, come here and work hard for a lot of people translates to come here and deliver the whiter, richer people food while you spin on a hamster wheel for years and we refuse to consider you employee and you apparently can't even have the Canadian pension plan. I didn't know that until he said it. Generally speaking, I should say I am pro-hamster as they are adorable, underappreciated creatures capable of more affection than you'd expect. But the purpose of labor laws is ostensibly to narrow the gap between the people with more power and the people with less, to make inequality at least somewhat tolerable, lest there be a revolution. So maybe labor laws are more of a hamster ball than a hamster wheel. A bare level of protection as you move about a world that could otherwise flatten you at any moment. But if you're someone like Doug Ford, who was born into familial wealth and you know, handed a job and became slowly more and more powerful politically almost every year of his life, that hamster ball of labor protections doesn't matter to you. I don't think he can really understand or see or would even try to, you know, the actual precarity of people in those situations. Now it's time for foreseeable disaster of the month. What's your disaster, Allison? My foreseeable disaster that I do not want to foresee is that the government's going to panic about rising COVID cases or, you know, various trends in the pandemic. And even though almost 90% of, of adults are vaccinated um, or at least have one shot, they're going to feel pressure from either the media, to be honest, or the science table or Stephen Del Duca and, you know, start closing stuff down again. And I just don't want to live another winter like that. And I don't want to have that brewing as a political topic like my opinion is this is pretty much as good as it's going to get, and we got to be safe, but ride it out, and Doug Ford, keep it open, man, keep it open. My foreseeable disaster this month is the opposite, <laughs> that he will be overly, that he will once again, as, as, as our foreseeable disaster of the month has been nearly every month for the past year and a half, that Doug Ford will be overly reluctant to close things down and take the public health measures necessary to stop the spread of whatever wave this is before things get out of hand, thereby requiring a much longer, more severe, and more frustrating lockdown than if they were to react early and quickly. But it's not a wave. The cases aren't even going up and everyone's acting like they're crazy. They're so low. No, Doug Ford, don't listen to Jonathan. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly really interesting to see how, you know, as with everything else they're doing, it's obviously calculated leading up to the election, the fact that, you know, they're, they're aiming to have all restrictions of all types removed by March, presumably so that the pandemic will be well out of people's minds by uh, by the election. I mean, I don't know, good, good luck with that. I don't, I mean, political considerations are not ideal for, you know, timing public health measures. And one thing I will say that I feel like every, every once in a while, I remember like, I don't think I've given them credit for this. One thing that they've done actually done okay 
is that unlike a lot of other jurisdictions, they never really removed indoor mask mandates. That seems to have actually been a really good move that a lot of places uh, didn't make or didn't have. And actually, they've remained fairly conservative on that. I mean, conservative in the good good sense. That's pretty good. So I'm actually kind of nervous uh, what's going to happen when they finally pull that out. But I guess we'll see what we are in a few months. Yeah, I'm more skeptical of their plan to get rid of the vaccine passport in like the middle of January. Oh my God. That is, I, I just, I don't think they're going to do that. I don't know why they would even say they were going to do it, but other, I don't think that they will. Um, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm just starting to go to movies again. I'm going to have to stop. I think the pressure, I mean, that, that was like the one thing they did cave on. I don't even know why they said it, to be honest. I guess something, something anti-vaxxers. Did you see that? Um, broken social scene. What? So uh, I don't know. I guess I guess Kevin Drew. Yeah. Uh, the the lead singer of Broken Social Scene is an anti-vaxer. Oh. <laughs> oh wow. And they had a concert. Yeah. So Broken Social Scene had a concert scheduled at Massey Hall for, I don't know, sometime between now and January. I'm not sure exactly the date. And they recently rescheduled it to, like, the end of March. And the reason being, uh, (laughs) at least everyone seems to think the reason being is because that's when the mask mandates and the vaccine passports are supposed to be gone. So I think that is, I don't know, kind of an interesting cultural example of like how obviously some people are thinking, right? I mean, they're literally called broken. Yeah, they're literally called broken social scene. And the first time ever that name makes some kind of sense. But also, it's like it's it's nice to know that they finally sort of earned their reputation as a as just a convenient shorthand punchline for um, sprawling chaoticness. No, but I mean, what is interesting is that people are listening and making you know pretty big decisions around those timelines the PCs put out. So I don't know if that was the PCs' plan for that. Like it was obviously some sort of hat tip to the I'd say the anti vaxxers. Um, And, you know, the anti-vaxxers are listening. And that was Wag the Doug, a show about popping out of a porta potty at your press conference. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith. You can find me on Twitter at Queen's Park Today. And you can email both of us at wagthedug at canadaland.com. Woo! Yes, exciting. Our producer is Damilola Aname, who's leaving. And since her last episode, we're really sad and we're going to miss her so much. We'll miss you, Dammy. Thank you. Our executive producer is Kieran Outshorn. Our finishing producer is Kevin Sexton. And our theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, support us. Go to wagthedug.com or click on the link in the show notes. 